Right. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, our culture kind of has um, a, a very deep tension over um, conversions and apologies. Have you noticed this? Apologies are more funny, so we'll do that first. This, is, this one's for the engineers in the room. But for everybody else, um, for, have you know, there have been a lot of public apologies um, out there in the last couple of years, you know, you had the Tiger Woods gig, you had the Kanye West deal, you had the, the, the BP oil company that was a little personal for us that we were living down on the panhandle at the time, and all that. I mean, there's, there's lots of public apologies. And um, one of the things that, that happens— did you, Kanye West, uh, you might not be familiar with the incident, but there was this incident where Beyonce and Kanye West both sort of had to apologize for the same incident. And so Beyonce was on Leno, and she apologized. It was a really good apology. I mean, she's just like, look, I just—and it's just— I'm sorry. And so Kanye West, who was one who really did the thing that was bad, gets on stage like a while later, and Jay Leno interrupted him in the middle of his apology. He said, I just—I'm gonna let you finish, but I just want you to know Beyonce's apology was so much better. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things I think that everybody is frustrated with, and this is the real tension, is, is that we recognize that we are not apologized to enough. Have you noticed that? That you're not apologized to enough? And when you do get an apology, it's not a very good one, right? Um, a, a family that I know, um, well, I, I, let me just, I'm trying to make this a general. Um, one of the teachers that I ran into recently told me that she had one of her kids apologize to her after she disciplined her in class. And she said it, this is, it was the first time in more than 20 years of teaching a kid had ever apologized unprompted to her after doing something wrong. Ever, right? You probably had that experience. You just are not apologized to nearly enough, right? And then when people do apologize, it's always like, I'm sorry, you, you're defective apologies. You know, the, you know what I'm talking about? You get this like, well, I'm sorry if you took offense at my brilliant statement. <laughs> but I'm just really— Or you get the sort of um, n- admit nothing apologies. It's like, it's like just the descriptive apology. Well, I'm sorry that this event happened. It's very unfortunate. And you should just forget it, you big idiot. I mean, these are the sort of, I mean, these are the apologies we give. And, e- and if we, if, you, if that's not the kind of apology you give, it's only because you've disciplined yourself not to, right? And the other thing is, is that apologies are so offensive. The idea that you should have to apologize to somebody is so offensive. And, and, and now you might go, well, I don't get offended. Okay, well, how do you act when somebody apologizes to you? Do you know how people act in this church when I try to apologize to them? And listen, I'm just one of these guys that has to apologize a lot, you know? Martin Luther is like my patron saint. He had to repent every day for this, what came out of his mouth, and that's me. And so I have to apologize a lot. And so I go up to people and say, I just, look, I just want to say I'm sorry. And they go, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? You know? What are you doing? You're not apologizing. You know why they're—you know why they do that? You, know, you don't have to apologize. Look, I don't ask people to apologize to me. Because you know what normally goes with an apology? A grudge. If I have to apologize to you, yeah, I'll apologize. But I'm holding a grudge because I had to apologize because I should have had to apologize. There's this whole, like— mental problem we have with the idea of apologizing, right? We're Christians. We think we stink. Why, why would we have a problem with apologizing? We should apologize like 20 times every day, and it should go kind of like this. Wow, am I an idiot. <laughs> it just astounds me how selfish, stupid, idolatrous, God-defying I can be. I mean, what I did to you is just a really small piece. And only half of the blackness in my heart actually came out when I did that. In fact, probably more like a third. I mean, I, I mean I'm surprised you didn't hit me with a chair. Because you would have been completely justified. I'm, I'm just sorry. 
I mean, we should do that about 12 times a day. If we really believe the doctrine of depravity. Now even, okay, that's a little funnier, but, uh, but as bad as that in our culture is our offense at the idea of conversion, right? The idea that we would actually admit we were wrong, believe somebody else was right about something, change our mind, reorient our life, and do something different. Oh my gosh. People will sell and set buildings on, I mean, well, literally, Around the world, they'll set buildings on fire. But I mean, people will freak out at the notion of anybody trying to convince somebody of anything. I mean, anything. But here's the thing. We also cannot stop proselytizing everybody around us. Right? Like, I remember back when I was in my 20s and I could eat a Krispy Kreme donut without having an equal amount of ounces added to my personal weight. The, when I had a, I'd be, I went immediately and proselytized a number of people about Krispy Kreme donuts. Later on, as a parent, the whole Chick-fil-A thing, fairly healthy fried chicken with a play area where kids, it's very, it's hard for them to figure out even how to get hurt in there. Like those, I don't know if you've ever been in Chick-fil-A play area, but they are designed like, you've got to really have problems to get hurt in there. Like you've got to bring a knife in with you, okay, to get hurt in there. And so you get this like really safe play area, Fried chicken that you can explain to yourself is healthy while you eat a pound of those waffle fries and drink Coke. I mean, this is a—so I proselytize, right? We can't—whenever we run into something we love, we proselytize, right? We, we have this nature in human beings that good news should be told and believed by others and enjoyed by others. But when it comes to the idea of proselytizing on anything that can make us feel weird or create any kind of—we just go, oh, you can't do it. No way. But we can't help but be hypocrites about it. Tim Keller um, tells this story of—he he has a church in New York City, and there's lots of young people in 20s and 30s that come there. And, you know, these are, these are students at NYU and stuff. I mean, they're really against the whole proselytizing gig, you can understand. And so he went out—he uh, was out at lunch with this, with this young woman who was in her middle 20s, graduate student, and he was talking to her about the gospel. She'd come to church— they, she'd agreed to meet, and he was talking about the gospel, and he was kind of sharing about Jesus and repentance and faith and how G Jesus is Lord. And, and she went, whoa, 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 what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm trying to explain what, what Jesus taught about, about the kingdom, about himself. She says, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. But you, you think I should believe this, don't you? He was, and he was like, well, I mean, that's part of why I'm sharing it. Yeah, I'm trying to persuade you. Yeah. She's like, yeah, so you're you're, you're trying to make me think like you. You know, you're proselytizing me. He's like, he's like, well, well I mean, you could say that. I mean, that's, that's relatively, she, well, you, you know, you, sh you shouldn't do that. I mean, don't you realize that, you know, how offensive that is and that you really, sh you shouldn't try to make other people believe like you because that's inherently arrogant. And Tim, and I love Tim Kelly. He goes, whoa, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> right? Because what was she doing? She just turned right back around and started proselytizing him, right? Um, and, 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 see, she, and here's the thing about it. It wasn't she was stupid. She was a grad student in New York City. Okay, they're not dumb. But we're so blind to the inherent human push to share good news, to tell the truth. What we believe and are convinced is true. We're taught in certain areas to make nice that we shouldn't do that in certain subjects like religion. But usually we just don't want other people to talk about their religion, but we still want to talk about ours. Right? I mean, you meet with a good New Age person and they'll come down on you if you talk about Jesus in an exclusive biblical, historical kind of way. 
But the reason you can't talk about it is because you essentially should buy into their new age premises, right? That's why. Now, and, and this is true of politics too. You talk to, and this is true of, just, I'm just talking about Christians now, okay? So you've got Christians on the political left, you've got Christians way on the political right, and you've got some that are somewhere in the weird center. Well, what happens? The Christians on the way political left tell all the other Christians they should, they should shut up politically. And then what happens? They go out and demonstrate politically. And then the, the, the evangelicals are like, oh, I wish the fundamentalists would just shut up. They're just hurting us. And then, they, and then the fundamentalists are like, oh, you guys, Jesus is not about a political kingdom. And then they go out and they'll protest and hand out voter cards. And, right? I, I can't tell you how many Christians a little to the left of me have said, listen, you shouldn't be speaking politically. But I go down to the farmer's market and I only see one group of people talking politically down there. Right? Now, I'm not, I'm, not pick, I'm not trying to pick a side or push you to a side. What I'm saying is, do you see the tension in our culture? Do you see the inconsistency? We want to say, listen, I should be apologized to more. But let me just ask you this. What's the ratio of apologies received and apologies given in your life? Because I think a lot of people would say, well, I'm not apologized to enough, but I bet you've received more than you've given. A lot of us. Or we, we, want, we come to the conversion thing. We go, oh, you know, we shouldn't try to convert people. And then we turn right around and we find ourselves trying to convert people everywhere, in everything, on every subject. Human beings cannot get away from these two issues. The idea that sometimes we've got to admit we're wrong, and sometimes admitting we're wrong is big enough that it changes the whole course of our life. And essentially, this is what the Gospel of Mark is all about. The message of the Gospel of Mark is all about repentance, which is essentially apologizing to God, and faith. That repentance or apology launching us into a completely different way of thinking, acting, feeling, walking, being, i.e. conversion. You cannot listen to the message of Jesus and let Jesus teach us his own message and not get that from it. His message is that repentance and faith brings forgiveness with God and that that includes us in the kingdom. Okay? Now there's two things that have to come up here. I've got to talk about repentance and faith and I've got to talk about the kingdom because there is just a lot of confusion out there about what the kingdom means. So, first, Jesus' message is about repentance and forgiveness. Let me turn a page here. I'm having some dexterity troubles. George Eldon Ladd, who was a very well-known New Testament scholar um, in the 20th century, said, said this once. Univer the universal agreement of, the, of New Testament scholars is that the heart of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God. Right? So the heart of Jesus' teaching, the kingdom of God. And then right after that he says, from there, what the kingdom means and is, well, there's very little agreement. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So they're all like, this is the thing, right? It's about the kingdom. That's the heart of Jesus' message. It's about the kingdom. From there, we pretty much disagree. Well, that's very helpful, isn't it? But here's what I would say about that. If we, we, the reason that we, people disagree about what the kingdom actually means is because the kingdom is a fairly nuanced subject. It's not an easy, like, one little gig. It's one sentence. You've got it defined, and that's it. It's everything God rules over, including when and how and why and how is sovereign. It's, it's a fairly 
nuanced subject. But what isn't particularly nuanced is the application of the fact that Jesus said the kingdom is near. What's, Jesus, what's the effect Jesus is after? The effect Jesus is after is, well, it's repentance and faith. He's saying that the significance of the nearness of the kingdom is that we need to be ready for it. That's what he's saying. The kingdom is close. God's active reign is close. It's, it's about to happen. Now, what that means is you need to do something right now. You need to be ready to be part of the kingdom fully here. Now, the way you get ready for that is you need to be rightly related to the king because when the kingdom comes, the king is going to rule over everything and your well-being is going to be directly correlated to your relationship with the ruling Lord, King God. And so what's necessary for this to be good news for you is that you have to have a good relationship with the king, right? Otherwise, it's going to be bad news, right? For example— See, now, generally speaking, we don't think of America as having frontiers that are outside the law. You know what I'm saying? It's been a while since we had sort of the Wild West, where, you know, you had the government way back on the East Coast, but then you had, like, roving gangs and, like, infighting with tribes and peoples and towns and people going from one side of Missouri into Kansas and massacring 900 people. I mean, like, you had these frontiers where things aren't controlled. And the whole idea of empires with frontiers that aren't controlled are in things like Star Wars, right? Um— one of my favorite shows, Firefly. I mean, there's an empire, but there's stuff on the outside of the empire, okay? And the idea is, is that the strength of the empire is over here, and eventually it's going to get out here. And what's going to happen when that strength gets out here? And so in the ancient world, this was very common. You'd have a king, and around where the king was centered, his control would be very strong. But he'll have conquered lands out here. But after he conquers them, his, his armies withdraw, and some people stay faithful to the rulership of the new king, and other people rebel. And eventually he's going to come back out there. And he's going to reestablish his reign. And so whether or not that king coming is good news for you has entirely to do with whether or not you're a loyal subject who loves the king or whether you are the kind of person who has been undermining his rule ever since he left. You see, and the fundamental message of the Bible is that we're not anywhere near as good as we think we are that we're not just sinners, but idolaters, and that we are constantly undermining the rule and reign of God in every level of our life, constantly. And so the most needful thing for every human being with the kingdom coming near is forgiveness. That when the king comes, we are going to want to be on his right side, and we're not. And so what we need is an ambassador to come before him and offer us terms of amnesty. Or we are in huge trouble, and that the kingdom is coming is not good news. But see, Jesus says it is good news, and here's why. Because he is the amnesty-offering ambassador. He is coming to give the grounds of our freedom, and he is coming to pay the price personally, for our freedom. That's what he's saying. And he's saying the only condition of that forgiveness is our repentance, which is what? Us saying to the king, yes, come, your lord, ruler, and king. You come. You are right. This, this is rightfully what belongs to you. The problem we have with that metaphor is the fact that most of the ancient kings were bad kings, and they were mean, tyrannical despots, and we have a very difficult time logically thinking of a conquering king that is maximally good in every way, created every good thing that was already in the kingdom, created every single person who was in it, and every good dynamic that was part of it, so that he rightfully does own rule and stand over everything good. 
So let me just, let me, let me go quick through Jesus' teaching to give you a little data on this, just to make sure you don't get confused on it. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says this. This is what Kari read. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, to set this up, Mark has already pre-played the message in the ministry of John the Baptist. Three verses into the gospel, okay? So the first verse is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, Messiah, who's coming to, to show us who God is, bring us to him. That was his first verse. He's not even to verse four. I mean, verse three, he says, okay, now there's this one calling John the, called John the Baptist who came and he said, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. I.e., the kingdom of God is coming, get ready, right? Same message as Jesus. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for what? For the forgiveness of sins. Do you see how it's ex- John's message and Jesus' message are identical? The kingdom is coming near. The king is returning to his people. The problem is a need for repersonal repentance. We have to admit we're wrong, and we have to do it in a dramatic enough way that we don't just say, I, I think it was wrong because God is so uptight. God, I'm sorry I offended you. See, God, Jesus is not calling us to that kind of repentance. He's not calling us to the, oh, there's something defective in God, and since he has all the power, I'll sort of admit I'm wrong so that there's not a problem. That's not the kind of repentance he's inviting us to, is it? He's inviting us to a baptizing kind of faith, right? A faith that is significant enough that we are turning in a new direction, that we're believing and we're repenting, we're turning around, changing our minds, going in a new direction so that we can walk into the forgiveness that he offers. Now, then, um, then Jesus says this a few verses later, and then um, in chapter 2, a few verses after that, he comes back to the same theme again. Because remember, Mark doesn't tell us exactly the messages Jesus taught. There's no sermons in Mark, remember, until much later. Here he's getting, hammering down exactly what Mark is teaching. So he said what John taught. He said exactly what Jesus taught, which are identical. And then he gets here, and what's the issue with the paralytic? The issue is, does he have the right to do what? Forgive sins in response to faith right? Not leaving a lot of room for lack of clarity. Now, in the very next passage, which we're going we're gonna to talk about some next week, he, Jesus gets criticized for hanging out with sinful people. Now, we generally downplay this in our minds because we think of sinful people as cool people. So w- w- we've grown up our whole lives, those of us who've been Christians for a while, and we're upset by the idea that Jesus is portrayed as dorky and self-righteous. And so, and so the idea that Jesus hangs out with sinners, that sounds pretty cool because, you know, sinners are cool people, and Jesus hung out with them. So Jesus, even though he was good, he was also cool. So it's a, it, Christianity doesn't have to be dorky. It just has a lot of dorks, right? So this is, this is better, right? And this, that's a helpful idea if you're 15. Now here's the, pro, here's the problem with that, okay? Here's the problem with that. The problem is that the Jesus, the people Jesus was hanging out with were really bad people, okay? This is the problem. They were real, no kidding, home-wrecking prostitutes, okay? Now see, we have a victim mentality in prostitutes. We think of prostitutes, oh, what happened to her? Which, in almost every case, something did happen to her, right? But we don't think in terms of the social destructive, family-wrecking, child-destroying force that prostitution wreaks in the culture at large and the people that go to them. We just blame the dudes, which is not a bad strategy, frankly, in a lot of ways. But 
the, the pain caused by prostitution is enormous. And Jesus is hanging out with no kidding hookers, okay? He is hanging out with real money extortionists, okay? Like, no kidding, tax collectors had the force of Roman swords behind them. They were not that unlike some mob families, in certain cases, depending on how bad in particular ones were. I mean, it was, these, these people really extorted money. There's a reason why they were universally hated by everyone, okay? He was, re, he was really, you know, the, the person in your circle of friends, everybody goes, oh my gosh, what, an, what a jerk. That guy, okay? That's the guy Jesus was hanging out with. He was hanging out with people who make your stomach turn, not cool people. We're not talking about guys who can throw back a couple of beers, Okay? The Bible says you're allowed to throw back a couple of beers, okay? It doesn't have—that's not how the Bible talks about sin. Sin in the Bible is stuff that we pretend isn't bad, but that destroys people, okay? There's—every time Jesus—God gives a command, it's because that action offends him, and it offends him for a actual reason, okay? And so when it says Jesus is hanging out with sinners, it means sinners, Okay? It means bad people. We should be embarrassed by that, even if we're not Christians. And so the, the Pharisees, the religious, say, dude, like, I mean, it's one thing to hang out with, like, nominal people who go to church, you know, on Christmas and Easter, but are pretty nice. I mean, you're hanging out with, like, locating hookers, okay? This, and strippers, this cannot be okay. And what did, you know what Jesus says? This is what he says. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see how he's continuing to frame his mission? He's saying, I am coming as a representative of the kingdom. The kingdom is not good news to these hookers and tax collectors and strippers and homewreckers and it's not good news to them. So I came to call them. I came to tell them that they can come to repentance. They can receive forgiveness. They, I'm not going to come and say their sin is okay because their sin is not okay. But I'm also not coming to say the kingdom is coming and you're dead. I've come to offer a mediating option that if they would repent of their sins, the damage they've already done will not be counted against them. Now listen, friends, to good people, that is an offensive solution, Right? Think about this. Think about the percentage of Americans that are upset at the idea of giving illegal aliens amnesty. Okay, listen. I'm not taking a political position on this, okay? But th think about how people go. There's some people who go, um, and honestly, I'm one of them, who go, dude, that's just not fair. That's just not fair. You can't just go, oh, forget about all this. You can't do that. Well, whatever we choose to do politically, that's sort of what Jesus is doing with all of us. We want to be part of his country. We have done, we have tried to sneak our way in and push our way in and disobey his rules and his standards and how his kingdom works. We do whatever we want, but we go to church a couple times or we don't actually completely blaspheme and we think we're good enough and we ought to be taken care of and we ought to get amnesty and we just ought to be handed a card and say, well, you're in. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not going to how it works. We're going to back up to this. Are you willing to become part of the kingdom. But you see how it, it's not the, listen, you've already sinned, you're dead. Go back. It's not that. 
And it's not, oh, it's okay, let's just make nice. It's not that either. It's, is there repentance and faith so that you can receive forgiveness so that the coming of this kingdom can be good news? That's Jesus' message. And the rest of the Bible ends up saying the same thing. Paul's out among the Greeks now in Acts 10. Well, no, this is—I'm sorry, this is, this is 17, this is 10. So Peter is preaching here, and—no, um, no, no, no. I'm sorry, this is one of the, the first deacons. But anyway, the, the, he's preaching the gospel, and he's saying, the prophets testify about him, meaning the Messiah coming, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So this—he could have preached about anything, Right? So what's, what, did he, what did the first evangelist think the message of Jesus was? Was that by believing in the risen Messiah, we could what? Receive forgiveness of sins. It's critical. It's a, it's a, it's a very critical point. And that gets really confusing because what do you hear about when people talk about the church? Particularly in Madison, everybody's like, well, you're supposed to be so good. Why don't you do more good stuff? Have you heard that? I should, oh, I should say it like this. Well— I should say it more studious instead of more angry, right? Um, but the, the idea is, is that, well, we see other people— Listen, if we're not careful, other people are going to tell us what we're about, and we can't allow that. Can't allow that. We have to be about first what Jesus is first about. We don't have a choice on that. I, I tell people all the time who tell me that I shouldn't believe what I believe. I always say, listen, I don't—I have a Lord. I don't make up my own religion, okay? I don't have the right or the grounds or the knowledge or the capacity or anything necessary for that task. But what that ends up meaning is this, on two counts. One is, we've got to be really clear about what we're first about. But the second is this. This is, this is our, this is the invitation we offer too. This is the invitation I need to offer you, okay? This is what I need to, I need to offer you this invitation. Listen, you may, you may have the same cultural feelings everybody else has about conversion, and you may not be want, wanting me to invite you to offer God an apology, okay? You may be just like everybody else in the culture, and you may find what I'm about to say very offensive, okay? And so that's why I tried to be funny at the beginning of the sermon, so you wouldn't be as mad now. Um, <laughs> however, this is exactly the same offer that exists 2,000 years later right now. The fact is, is that in 1 Peter it says, um, to God, a, a year is like a thousand, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The kingdom of God is near. Um, and, and when the kingdom fully comes, um, you, that's supposed to be good news, right? If a good king returns, that's good news objectively, whether or not it's good news for you. It is good news. The good king is going to return, no matter how it relates to you. The question is, is it going to be good news for you? Is it going to be your king returning? Or is it going to be the, the king that you're kind of at odds with because you're not really wanting his grounds of this sort of thing? See what I'm saying? And what Jesus is offering you is no matter, no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of tab you've got, no matter who you've hurt, he's offering you a very frustrating to all the good people offer. Um, and, the, and one of the reasons he does that is because they're really hard to be good people, according to Jesus, on the kind of level Jesus is good. But there are people who are better than others, relatively speaking. And Jesus really walks right by that distinction. 
And he says, listen, no matter what kind of tab you've worked up, no matter how far you've walked away, no matter what you've said about God or about other people, no matter how you've acted, no matter what you've done, or how you've done it, or how many times you've done it, or how confirmed you have become in your heart and character in it, if you'll turn around from that, if you'll apologize on the deepest level and say, you know what, um, I've been going the wrong way, and um, I've been acting like I'm king, God, Lord, master, ruler, definer of all things, including myself. And uh, it may be that I'm not. Maybe that you are. And um, I'm really sorry, and I want to do something different. That's the offer. The offer is, is that if you will take that step, Jesus will take every step towards you. He will forgive all. Everything. I mean, when, when Alexi and I have a fight, and I end up apologizing, which is a pretty good percentage of the time, um, <clears throat> because I, I really am wrong, um, there's this feeling. Do you know the feeling I'm talking about when you really apologize? When you, and you go, and, you, and, and you, yeah, you had a fight, and they were wrong too, but you, instead of just kind of blanketing it over, you, you think about the thing you really did wrong. You get specific enough that you can be completely sincere. You know what I'm talking about? You say, listen, whatever else happened, I did this. And nothing is a good enough excuse for why I did that. That was a defective, sinful, idolatrous behavior. And I'm really sorry. And they go, thank you for apologizing. I, I, I forgive you. You know, that, you know the feeling that comes— when that happens. Um, now think about that. Think about if you are really emotionally connected to every sin you've ever committed. Every person you've ever hurt, everything you've ever done, all of that, and recognizing that you, when you did those things, you didn't just offend those people, but there was a vertical level of offense because you, 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 did, you did intentional damage to something that belongs to the good king. How could he not be offended by that? Like, we think of God as uptight. How, how could he not be offended by that, right? And if you came in real repentance, really apologizing, and you knew that he really forgave all, can you imagine the kind of depth of peace that would come over you? It's astounding. It can kill decades of anxiety really fast. If you know and believe that the king is coming and he has offered you forgiveness. And the only condition is repentance. Okay, I need to spend a couple minutes here on um, some confusion about Jesus' message. And that is, um, we need to understand what it means that Jesus' message, bring, um, that, for, that forgiveness brings citizenship in the kingdom. Because... <clears throat> When Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near, people have taken that to mean all kinds of different stuff. And one of the things you need to realize is that everybody wants to co-opt Christianity. Okay, you need to realize this. This is very important. Every movement in the world, particularly in America, because over 80% of Americans self-identify as Christians, everybody is looking to ideologically co-opt Christianity. Okay? 
The Republicans will always want you to believe that voting Republican is the Christian thing to do. The Democrats will always want you to believe that voting for Democrats is the Christian thing to do, right? I mean, cops will want to convince you that shopping there is the Christian thing to do. I mean, everybody wants to co-opt the supermajority, okay? Everybody. So everybody is—and so if the center of Jesus' message is the kingdom, and if we recognize that that idea is so nuanced that it's usually vague in our minds, what is the best concept to steal? What is the best Christian concept to hijack? The one that's at the middle that people are vague on so that you can fill it with content, and they'll believe the force of God is behind it. The kingdom of God is perfect. It's perfect. And if you don't track the biblical theme through Mark and these other Gospels and epistles of what Jesus is doing, you could be led to believe the kingdom is anything. Anything good. Um, So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, what does he mean? You see, because it can mean a couple different things. It could mean that the full kingdom of God is almost here and things are about to get a lot better. Right? It could mean that. It could mean Jesus has come, and as, be, as a good moral teacher and this great spiritual leader, as this positive person who has good energy and wants everybody else to have good energy and recognize that they have the same kind of divinity in them that he has in him. Do I sound like Oprah? Um, then you, you can rise up as humanity can rise up, and Jesus' leadership and recognition of the inner spiritual divinity can create a new society where we can all care about each other and love each other and help each other. And it'll be the kingdom of God. It'll be God's will, what God would want to happen right here. Don't you see? That's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring us the kingdom of God. The problem is we're not following him. We need to follow him. And we need to recognize that what we need to do is we need to get involved in politics. We need to get involved in um, social action. We need to get involved in local schools. We need to do all that stuff because that's what Jesus is calling us to do. We need to repent of our bad energy and our lack of recognizing our own divinity in ourselves and other people. We need to be more positive and more active. See what I'm saying? You've heard this. Haven't you heard this? You've heard this, right? That's the kingdom of God, right? Is that the kingdom of God? Is the kingdom of God near in that it's about to happen? Jesus is leading us into the utopian society. Is that what Scripture is saying? Or is it saying something else? That the kingdom of God is near, meaning it's about to be here, therefore do something. That is, Jesus has come to gather a people that is his kingdom, so that when the full and complete reign of God comes, they are already ingathered, so that the good news of the good king is good news for them. Because without Jesus coming, what it's saying is, without the Messiah coming to his people, the good news of the good king is universally bad news to every person. So Jesus comes, right, and he seeks to make the coming king, he seeks to make that good news, good news for you, right? And to make you a nation of priests that would go out and make that good news for an ever-increasing and widening group of people. Now, here's the question is then, which does it mean? Let me read you a quote. Now, okay, nor- I want you to know, because I'm still kind of new here, I will normally not pick on people by name. The reason I'm going to tell you this is Brian McLaren is because a lot of Christian evangelicals read his books and you shouldn't be. Um, and um, he has been publicly corrected and privately corrected a number of times by evangelicals who believe in orthodox theology and just refuse to accept it. So I feel like I can do it in this case. This is what he said. This is what he says. This is a YouTube video. It has 35,000 hits. Okay? 
This is what he says about the kingdom of God. A lot of us think that the purpose Jesus came was to try to help us get to heaven after we die. Well, I'd like to raise some serious questions about that based on the New Testament. I'd like to suggest Jesus didn't come here to tell us about how to get to heaven after we die primarily. He came to tell us about how the kingdom of heaven can happen here on earth while we're here and when our children and grandchildren are here. Now, you need to understand something. Um, McLaren was widely published in Christianity Today, and he's considered by most people outside of the church as an evangelical. Okay? That is 1880s progressivist German liberal theology right there in the flesh. And, um, and what the, one of the words we really need to pay attention to is this one. Primarily. Now, I think he goes way too far here in terms of the relationship of Jesus to these, this question, but that is the word that's really important. What Jesus came to primarily do. Is this what he came primarily to do? So I want to ask, I want to say two things about this. The first is, oh, and then, and so he said he wanted to raise some questions from the New Testament. So where did he go in the New Testament? He went to the Lord's Prayer, and he says, listen, Jesus said to pray, Our Father, hallowed or holy or good or honorable be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So we're, Jesus taught us to sincerely pray that this world would become like heaven, right? That's what we're supposed to pray. So why would Jesus teach us to pray something insincerely? So surely what Jesus means is this world would become like heaven in terms of we do just what God wants us to do. Well, there's a, there's a couple things that ha- really need to be said about this. The first is, is this a biblical notion? And I would like to say um, it's really not. This is an enlightenment notion. Okay? In the 1880s, it was very it was very popular to believe. In the late 1700s, all the way through really to the 1880s, and actually until about World War I started, it was very, very popular in Europe and in some places in America to believe that we were ever moving in a progression towards a better world. Because science was kind of coming up, industrialization was happening, we were able to do things we'd never done before, all kinds of knowledge was coming on the scene. And you could, if you looked at that and you saw a trajectory, you'd be like, oh my gosh, we are going to have one amazing world. And so great church leaders like Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley, who lived in this late 1700s, were post-millennialists in their understanding of the end, meaning the world would get better and better and better and better and better, and then it would be just the reign of Jesus on earth, and then the end would come into this great, wonderful world, because this is where we're going. Because in the late 1700s, lots of people were getting converted, and lots of science and technology, right? The problem is, and then what happened? What happened was we found out at the turn of the 20th century that people really couldn't be trusted with all this technology and knowledge. Because guess what we did with it? We made mustard gas (laughs) and castrotina wire and tanks and all kinds of stuff. And then right when we thought we'd gotten beyond it, we had a worldwide catastrophic economic depression that made our Great Depression look like peanuts compared to the one in Europe. And then out of that, who rose as the great leader into the good future? Well, kind of Adolf Hitler did. (laughs) And Stalin, in the, the Germany, the most cultured and educated and artistic society in the world, and in the Soviet Union, which was the great community utopia that was supposed to rise out of Marxism. Our two greatest and best hopes created the two worst and most horrifying people who killed tens of millions. And what happened was, German idealism in theology, which said that we were going to have this better world, just kind of died on the table, is what happened. Not because we Christians stood against it and made great biblical arguments for why it was false, but because of two world wars, really. 
and the mass graves that covered all of Asia and Europe. And people went, wait a second, there may be something wrong with us beyond our ignorance and lack of technology. And then what happened? Economic prosperity picked up, and we forgot. Right? Do you remember that quote from the Lord of the Rings that history became legend and legend became myths, and some things just passed out of knowledge that should not have been forgotten? You need to understand, I'm 33. That's not that old. But in my mind, Vietnam is, is history. It's not, my li- it's not my life. That's history, right? Um, I remember my, the first president I'm conscious of is Reagan, okay? You need to, I mean, you understand this, okay? What that means is I never hid under a desk because the communists were going to come and kill us. I don't remember the atrocities in Bulgaria and Romania against Christians and in we have a whole generation of people my age and younger who have no memory, right, of any of this. We think reading Marx and Engels is cool and slick and collegiate. You understand that. And so the, the idea that God is going to bring in this wonderful utopia just makes perfect sense to us, right? Unless we look to the Bible and we find out that in a number of places the Bible just says, listen, buddies, it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. Okay? The whole idea that it's all going to get better, 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 not going to happen. No. You're going to lose. You're going to fight what the Norsemen called the long defeat. That was, that's a quote from the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien picked it up because he thought it was really important for Christians in the 20th century. You are going to lose at the end of a long, painful war. You're going to lose. You're going to fight, and you're going to lose. Are you, can you do that? You're going to pour your blood out for good. Not by taking power over others and subjugating them under your, um, your ideology, but you are going to give your life sacrificially for the good of other people. That's what you're going to do. And in the end, you're going to try to make this better world. And in the end, you're going to lose. Right? Can you handle that? That's what he's—in a number of places, Jesus— prepares us for a bad end, and then says, so go for it, guys. And that's exactly what it says in Second Peter. The last of Peter's epistles, he writes to the churches, and he says, listen, there was this guy Lot in 2 to 7, 7 8, he says, there was this guy Lot in Genesis, and he was a righteous man, but he lived in Sodom, and his heart was just vexed with what he saw around him. And he, he tried to do stuff, and he tried to do some—and he didn't do a good job in all, all these cases, but he, he was— it burned inside. He had this desire for there to be good, but he never could do it. And then he, it's on to 3.7. He says, listen, this whole world is going to go down. So you see, there, there's this tension in the Christian heart, which exists in the Lord's Prayer, which McLaren has missed, that we can exist as a people who can pray, oh Jesus, come. Oh God, that this world would live like you would have us live, like it is in heaven. Oh, that that would happen. That that idea in our minds, that orientation in everything that we do, in our sacrifice, in our life, and in our prayer, would be focused even, even knowing we will not win until the king finally comes entirely. And then there's this other idea that is, it is really important, I think, for us. That is the idea, is the, I just call, I call it this, the fallacy of idea egalitarianism, and that is this. Whenever you've got, because what you're thinking, I know what a lot of you are thinking, you're thinking, well, why not both, Nick? Why not both? Why not the forgiveness of sins, faith, repentance, right? And doing good things in the world. Okay, the answer is both. The answer is both. But here's what I got to ask you. 
which idea frames which idea. You see, whenever you want to do both, you've got to ask the question, which is the framing idea? Because here's what's going to happen. If you don't, the idea that most connects with your self-interest is going to take over. So for example, take hospitality. Remember me talking about hospitality a while back? If you're radically hospitable, somebody could come in your house and abuse your children. Safety is an important idea, right? But so is hospitality, according to Jesus, right? And according to the Bible, everywhere. So which idea modifies which idea? You see, if this is the main idea, this, and this idea modifies this, what are you going to do hospitably? Very little. It's going to be very tame. Very tame. But if this is the main idea, radical hospitality, which is then modified by safety, then th- you'll be hospitable. You'll just be wise in how you're hospitable. See, very different outcomes. Both people believe in both and. Both people believe in both and. Extremely different outcomes. Because the question is, whenever you've got two ideas, you have to make clear in your mind which idea modifies which. Does the, the message of the gospel of forgiveness of sins through faith to enter us into the kingdom, is that primary or is the utopian ideal primary? Which way does this work? If sin that is individual works out into social categories, which then affects our society, how do we work? Right? Now, some of you are afraid I'm about to make a political statement. I'm not going to talk about what the government should be doing, and therefore I am not making a political statement. But there are many of us who really believe that our great hope, the great hope that we should participate in, is here that we should do technology and education, and if we push it this way, these people will get better. We don't believe that. Now, that does not mean that the government's role isn't the schools, right? It may be that we should push revival from here. You, I mean, you can believe anything you want politically on this whole gig, okay? So don't get caught up in that. The issue is, what do we believe is at the bottom? What we as Christians believe is at the bottom is radical sinfulness. The, the reason our society isn't good isn't because we're ignorant. It's because we're not good, and that it's going to be futile to try to build a good society without good people, and we don't have any good people, okay? So something's going to happen here so that, so that healing can come here so that healing can come here. Okay, I'm going to, I need to stop, so we'll just stop. I've got like a bunch more, but we'll just—let me just leave you this. One is you need to make a decision about, about the kingdom, so you've been coming for a while and you're kind of thinking about it and chilling out. And listen, if your seeking process isn't there yet, don't let me annoy you into a decision. Just keep coming and keep hearing it and thinking about it, whatever, okay? But it's, it's my job to try to, to help you close at some point because otherwise you just never do. You just listen and you just listen and you kind of go along. Every once in a while I got to come and poke and I got to say, listen, it might be time to cross the line because there's some things that you only understand by believing, right? So maybe you need to make a decision about that. The second thing is, Friends, we have to have really clear in our mind what the kingdom is about. What is the message we've been given? What's the task we've been given? And we have been given the same task in the earth that Jesus brought. He came to preach the kingdom that people could receive forgiveness through repentance. And then he gave that task to us. We still have an ambassadorial task, not a kingdom-building task. The kingdom-building comes out of our role as ambassadors to invite people into the kingdom. Do you understand? And we have to have that clear, or we will be co-opted by a thousand different groups. 
on the right and left, front and center, in and out, celebrity, whatever. We have to know who we are. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that as we go, um, you would help us to have really square in our minds the, the message you came to bring. As we look at the rest of the Gospel of Mark, help us to hold this front and center in our minds and rejoice in um, what we'll learn about the King whose kingdom is coming so that more and more we would see that coming as good news. More and more we would delight in the forgiveness you offer. And more and more we would throw ourselves into repentance and faith towards you. Pray in Christ's name, amen.